Good morning, everybody. Um, like to say a few words to meditation practice, sort of basically attitudinal stuff, and um, hoping to incite some reflections on on your own practice, your own expectations, your own approaches, uh, your own likes and dislikes when it comes to sitting down with yourself. As you know, we're creatures of habit. We have habits in movement and um, they're quite pronounced. When we're too far away from each other to recognize each other's faces, we easily recognize each other's gaits, each other's way of walking. We have habits of emotion yeah. In other words, given given a few number of stereotype triggers, we unfortunately go into a rather limited number of stereotype emotional reactions to those triggers. In other words, um, I don't get the breakfast jam I like, and my heart sinks, or I I do get a little sweet dessert, and my heart goes all happy and thinks this is a good world I'm living in. Um, We have also habits of perception. In other words, we perceive things uh, often not so much along the lines of what these things actually are, but of what they are to us. Um, So what we perceive is strongly habituated by what we associate that new perception with. In fact, the color of that perception is largely not due to what the thing is, but to what the thing means to us or has meant in earlier situations. And it's probably fair to say that we also have habits of attention. In other words, that the way we attend to things is powerfully conditioned and not always is that conditioning obvious to us. For example, we have an object fixation in our attentional habit. We go someplace and we see the things in that place. We come in here and we see the people. There's an attentional tendency operative that basically focuses on the thing that takes the space. It doesn't focus on the space around the thing. It focuses on the thing. That happens in all sense channels. You fixate your attention on sound rather than on the silence that envelops the sounds. You fixate your attention on the rupa, on the thing that stands out, rather than on the space that uh, embeds the visual object. Um, We tend to Uh, taste and smell, not the pauses or the decreases in intensity. We tend to go for the spikes in intensity. If we come to meditation, obviously that is going to influence how we meditate. We have certain unacknowledged expectations of what it is to, to be quiet or what it is to be with an object what it is to establish a relationship with, say, the breath. And the more conscious we become of what we do there, the better our chances are that 
we have some wholesome results. Sometimes uh, we do not actually want to find out. I always meet considerable resistance in meditators to deviate from what they have tacitly agreed with themselves without possibly acknowledging this. What they have tacitly agreed, either they need to do or they like doing or they don't like doing. So, Trying to dislodge meditators from what they have quietly decided to themselves is, is good for them or that's the stuff they don't do enough of. That means that's the kind of the ambitious meditator. They need to do more of this. Or the other kind of the, the, the desire temperament tends to make its decision based on what it likes. Yeah? And it doesn't want to be taken away from what it likes. So I spoke a few um, days ago from temperaments that seek particular meditational strategies. Yeah? So the, the people who find chaos rather threatening and find comfort and solace and structure, and they tend to like highly orchestrated, structured meditation approaches. Other people who do not so well with structure, who feel maybe more afraid of failing or who have uh, an unhappy relationship to, to particular patterns or to particular tasks, they like to do, contemplate things in a very open way. And that favoring nature of mind makes then the decision on what kind of meditation approach I choose. And, as none of these meditation approaches, however valid they all are, and both of the mentioned ones are very valid, um, however valid they are, they will not take me the whole way. So sometime in my practice I will need to change. I will need to question this. I will need to find out what I'm doing and then try to do the opposite. And that's where the resistance comes up. So says, oh, I, I, I know how to practice. Don't, don't try to take that away from me. I, I just love to be open, spaciously aware of things. And yeah, maybe this is good. But maybe this is just dreaming. You know? You're just not actually engaging with an object. You're not actually wanting to put up the effort to identify something, get closer in, be with its characteristics, establish continuity, and investigate. Maybe... You just don't want to do this because it doesn't feel as nice as being in a sort of spaciously drifting, open away, seemingly aware, but maybe just sitting there drifting. That's one part. The other part, maybe just the opposite. I find equally difficult to dislodge people from when they have latched onto a particular object that gives them safety, that gives them the feeling, yes, there is resistance, there is contact, there is continuity, I can do that, I can hold on to this, I'm going to stay on my sledge when I, stay, when I stick to that object. And it can be quite difficult to encourage people to become more spacious, to become more allowing, to stop feeling afraid that they will lose mindfulness if they will lose the object. Yeah? Very different temperament very different character, very different psychological strategy. And you know, both are perfectly valid. And in fact, both approaches seem perfectly indispensable in my books. But both are just approaches. And if that approach works, 
you will need to do the opposite. Yeah? So the spacious awareness folks need to learn to actually engage with a specific object and establish a particular, clear, continued and investigative relationship to that object. And the folks who are doing with objects all the time, they will need to learn to embed that object with more space, to hold that more big. Now, if we're left to our own likings, and if we're left to our own conditioning, <coughs> particularly attentional conditioning, then we will just pick up that which we already know a little bit of, that which is some familiarity, and we'll engage with that. That's just how learning happens. We learn by, learn by going from the bits we know to the bits we don't know. And it's quite freaky if you have to meet something of which you know nothing. If you've ever been to a foreign country and then you looked at a foreign script, you look at a whole page of it or a whole plate of something, you know, a placard that tells you something, and you look at this and you recognize not a single letter. There's something in your heart that really sinks. It doesn't seem possible to get in there because you don't recognize anything. So all learning happens in a context where you basically partly you get invited in, somebody pats your back, says, very good, you're here, look, this is not difficult, sit down. This is, you already know that, actually, we're not telling you really something big, new in a big way. Look, we're just telling you basically things you already know. We just say it a little more clear, yeah? Pat on the back, affirmation, validation, feeling good. You sit down, you pay interest, you feel confident. And then they start shifting the goalposts. They start doing things they haven't declared. They start saying things, actually, yeah, it's what you think it is, but it's not quite that, you know. And that's where learning starts to happen. They make you feel safe, and then they teach you something you don't yet know. And most of us don't want to go there where we don't yet know. There's a stage in our lives when we're very good at this, when the whole life is one big, huge discovery and we are just a bundle of restlessness and curiosity. And the older we get, the more we have the feeling we should basically know. Yeah? And it gets more difficult to be just curious and it gets more difficult to get things wrong and to acknowledge to ourselves that we actually don't know. And meditation is not different from that. So meditation, on one level, needs to make us feel safe and on the other level, it, makes, it needs to take us to places where we don't actually know. That's where we generally feel unsafe. So I'd like you to consider a little bit, in the light of last night's talk, Sampajanya references what we do with our mindfulness. It doesn't just establish a relationship to a process or a thing or an object. It actually contextualizes that object. It says, well, it's that something to do with value. Does it actually work when I want to do this? Does it actually make me more peaceful? Does it actually make me more still? Does it actually bring about joy? Does it bring about the insight? Or does it just make me more tight, more failing, and induces migraine? So maybe I'm doing something that I could change. So Sampajanya opens out and tries to find what does it mean what I am mindful of? What does it connect with? What is its larger context? 
in terms of ethics, in terms of mind development, in terms of Brahma-viharas, in terms of investigation of the characteristics, and so forth. There's a whole load of contexts we could bring up here. So I'd like you to reflect a little bit about your own tacit assumptions in meditation practice. What you secretly expect it to be like? What you secretly think would be nice? What you maybe secretly think you're not good at? That this becomes kind of spelled out, that you're allowed to spell out to yourself what your learning edge is, where you're most challenged, what you're actually expecting would happen. Sampajanya claimed to be wisdom is on at a closer look not actually wisdom. Um, if you remember some of the contexts in which the term occurred last night, deliberately uh, speaking a lie doesn't really seem to involve a lot of wisdom, does it? Um, but Sampajanya brings about wisdom. It is the inquiring, contextualizing approach, the orienting uh, attitude in the mind that brings about wisdom. If we look at Buddhist meditation traditions, that's what oral traditions always have done. They have tried to tease out of this blueprint of basic meditative teachings as we find them in the suttas and try to help individuals who may look and arrive at practice quite differently with different skills, with different virtues, with different hang-ups. Oral tradition has always tried to give tools. Not all of these tools are for everybody, and not all of these tools are, are to be used together. Yeah. So you don't, if you have a cold buffer, you, you don't eat your, everything that's there. You just pick a few things. First you pick them by liking, and then you pick them to keep your weight down, and then maybe you may pick them at another stage just for to address particular issues in your diet. And so you may go through that same line of the cold buffer uh, with very differing uh, reasons. You want to nourish yourself, and first you just feed on likes, and then you feed on, on, on avoiding, and then you may be feeding on maintaining a, a balanced and healthy diet. And these are three different skill sets that will uh, basically inform your choices. If you look at some of the teachings we find in the 900 years after the Buddha, the big anthology of the Visuddhimaka, the path of purity, speaks of a number of things. It speaks of a couple of practical tools how we can approach meditation objects. I read you a few. This, gives, this is not something you should basically take off, but it gives you an idea of how people who have practiced 1,500 years ago on the basis of these Satipatthana teachings or, or teachings on mindfulness of breathing, have tried to make sense of stages in meditative practice. So there are five stages in relating to the med meditation object. The stages are named quickly. Learning, questioning, establishing, absorbing, and characteristic. Yeah. And they're explained in... The learning stage is you are actually finding out um, what your meditation object is, what a meditation object is to start with. 
and then what a specific meditation object is. In questioning, once you have established a meditation object, in questioning, you ask questions to that meditation object. Say, with the breath, for example, you might ask questions like, how deep does it go? How fast is it? What texture does it have? How much vitality is in a breath? What resists the breath? That would be just examples of how you could question your breath rather than be there and hope the thoughts would go away and jhanas would settle in. You could actually just sit there and find out whether your breath has differing qualities, depth, speed, rhythm, texture, yeah, the smoothness or the, the, the roughness of it, the vitality, the buoyancy in an in-breath, in an out-breath, and maybe the resistance of the body. How much muscular tension does the breath have to surmount to be able to flow into this body? Those would be simple, practical questions that might help you connect more deeply with the experience of breathing. You understand, the point is not to get an answer to these questions. The point is that if you ask this question, something opens up behind that question. A space of deeper listening, a space of deeper connection, of becoming more intimate with the experience of breathing. And that is precious. That teaches you something. That enables you in ways to be with the breath that were not there a moment ago. So that will be an example of questioning. Next stage, third one, establishing. That means deepening, settling into an object of meditation. Yeah? You're not dilly-dallying with 50 other possible meditation objects. Now, you know, in a consolidation phase, you're deepening this. You're taking this through your day. You're going back to this. You're making much of this. You keep going. Days, weeks, months. Then, next one is absorbing. In other words, you proceed with the establishment phase. You just learn to make that a resource. You learn to make that a place the mind loves to go to. You learn, you have now made much of this. This is familiar. It has become a resource. It, the mind goes there quite deliberately and it goes there because it likes it there. It feels good there. It grows still, it feels its strength, and that gives rise to confidence. And then the next one is you, uh, it's characteristic, you, you hold in a more profound way the characteristic of the, say, the experience of breathing. So you become aware of breathing as a, not just as a phys physiological function, but maybe also a symbolic act. Yeah. You recognize that in breathing you have uh, all the lakanas are there yeah? you recognize in the coming and going of the breath the impermanence in your dependency on, on every single breath you recognize the characteristic of contingency and of, de of dependency of um, the dukkha aspect in the elemental nature of breathing, because it's not really your air that you breathe in, and it doesn't really belong after you have had it in your lungs, uh, you recognize the impersonality of things, the element, the element nature of breath, 
teaches us something about the impersonality of life functions. So you learn in this last stage to understand the characteristic of breath as being symbolic of many, many things in your life. It shows up, the lakanas, in one single in and out breath. You have three universal characteristics. Um, It shows up the fact that you cannot really stop breathing, however good your in-breaths are, however exquisitely mindful you are of them, you have to keep doing this. So it tells us something that much of our life uh, has to do with letting in and letting go, allowing, welcoming and letting go. Many, many things in our lives feel that way. We can't just optimize one particular activity and then say stop. 8.52 on Saturday morning, Akinjino perfected his last in-breath, stop. It doesn't really work that way, although it's the last you hear of Akinjino. So, uh, we're told that these stages in relating to a meditation object are useful. Now, we don't need to follow necessarily what the Visuddhimaka says on this, but this gives us an idea how people who practiced and lived a long time ago and have put in great effort have tried to do this. We will probably have to find our own stages. We will probably have to find our own way in there. One way, and I would rate that to be part of Sampajanya, of clear comprehension, is the activity of labeling. A very effective strategy to cope with uh, profuseness of thinking, uh, with papancha, with the tendency of the mind to conceptually proliferate. And that can be quite overwhelming. So we give it a tool, and that tool uses a little bit of thinking, yeah, a label. But we're not playing with the file, we're just sticking with the label. So we're not interested in actually too much engaging with what's in the file. All we do is we have a look at the label, or we give labels. So rather than dealing with what's in the, in the rucksack of my thought processes, we just say thinking, yeah, or remembering, or fantasizing. Or we label an emotion, fear, aversion, fancy. So this would be, uh, I think, a prime example of Sampajanya practice. We have an experience, and then we give it a little referencing, contextualizing label. And we have an agreement, obviously, that says, by calling it thinking, we're not actually doing that thinking. We're not going through the motions. We don't enact the thinking. We're not feeding it. We just label this. And then I know I have already decided what my relationship to thinking is for these next three quarters of an hour. I'm not actually trying to do more of it. Yeah? So I put the label on it, and that allows me to put this aside. So that will be, a, I think, a very skillful and very time-honored practice. I see this practice mentioned very early on in the suttas. I believe it occurs in the Visuddhimaka as a strategy. It is mentioned here. There's a Pali word to it for those of you who like such things called Salakana. Uh, And it's a Sampajanya practice. Other practices are also maybe useful. Now we're not just speaking of a meditation object, but we're actually speaking of how to cultivate attention, 
counting would be one of them. Continuing would be one of them. Connecting bits of attention. Episodical moments of attention. Connecting them. Trying to lengthen our attention. Uh, One term that the old commentaries use is touching. Getting in touch. This is interesting because for many of us, mindfulness has to do with observation. And you understand observing is a visual metaphor for a relationship. And when we're in relationship visually with something, that is a very different relationship than when we're in touch with something in a tactile way. Think of the relationships you can establish visually and think of the relationships you establish by touching. There's a much greater closeness while touching. When you establish visual relationships, it's not even clear that you are seen as well when you see. You can be in hiding. You could be a voyeur. You could be, um, you could be spying. Yeah. So there's not even a guarantee for mutuality in the act of observing. In the act of touching, there definitely is mutuality. Your relationship to something you're in touch with is a lot closer, and it's a lot more on eye level. If you touch, you are being touched. So if we establish a relationship to our meditation object on the basis of seeing, something different happens than when we establish a relationship to our meditation object on the basis of touching, for example. So here we are encouraged to do the touching bit. So be in touch with the breath. Be in touch with the body is different in observing the body or observing the breath. Both have advantages and drawbacks. We'll need to investigate another time. So this continues with the meditations or the, the, the ways of establishing attention. Uh, Again, deepening is part of it, fixing is part of it, um, purification is part of it, and at the end of it, there's a stage called reviewing. In other words, going back over the things I have understood. Going back over the things that have happened. So as if to conclude an awareness of the process I have gone through. So pick up, consider your own practice in the light of some of these suggestions. I don't say you have to do all of this, but I think it is probably useful to reflect on what you are doing. Much of meditation is not so much learning new tricks as becoming more skilled at what we are already doing and finding out more deeply what we are already doing. And then that gives us a chance to decide whether this is useful or that it is not useful. If it is not, we have all possibilities to change it, transform or let go of it. If we don't find out what we're doing, it seems to just keep happening. And the fact that we're doing it or feeding it simply is not acknowledged. And because it's not acknowledged, we keep being the victims of our own patterns. So that's why these attitudes, strategies, approaches are probably worth reflecting on. Thank you. Let's sit for a while.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.